Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. Katrina Blowers and Tom Tilley here with you. And today we're talking about the push by some of Australia's leading sexual health doctors to turn a common antibiotic into a morning after pill to reduce the spread of some STIs. This drug is known as Doxypep. It's cheap, it's already widely available, and it's a potential game changer against infections, which have seen year-on-year increases over the past decade, particularly in the gay and trans communities. If you're going to have sex multiple times over a weekend, then you might like to take a single dose on Monday morning to cover the whole weekend. So what you need to know about the new STI-fighting morning after pill, we're going to be speaking with one of the doctors behind the campaign to get it going. That is our briefing topic for today. But first up, today's headlines... It's Halloween, Tuesday, October 31. Well, here's an idea for a Halloween costume. Um, Former (laughs) Spanish soccer... um, Maybe that's not fair, but anyway, here's the first headline. Former Spanish Soccer Federation President Luis Rubiales has been banned from all football-related activities for three years by soccer's governing body, FIFA. So they initially suspended him for three months as they carried out their investigations into that kiss at the World Cup in Sydney, that kiss he gave to Spanish player Jenny Hermoso. Uh, He insists the kiss was consensual, and she says it wasn't. So this scandal ended up tainting what was an amazing moment for the Spanish Women's World Cup team, who won, um, which was incredible, triggered protests, as we know, uh, and wider claims of sexism. Um, FIFA hasn't published the details of the ban yet, but they said Rubiales breached its disciplinary code. He is apparently going to appeal the decision. Every living Australian Prime Minister, except for Paul Keating, has signed a joint statement on the crisis in the Middle East. They've expressed their support for Israel and they've called for solidarity with Jewish Australians. So this letter is signed by Julia Gillard, John Howard, Malcolm Turnbull, Scott Morrison, Kevin Rudd, also Tony Abbott. It calls on Hamas to release the hostages taken on the October 7 terror attacks and also urges Israel to avoid civilian casualties and sustain humanitarian access into Gaza. Initially, Tom, it wasn't clear why Paul Keating didn't sign the statement, but we've since learned that he refused because it was drafted by, um, this is what he's saying, the Zionist Federation of Australia. Mm. Well, Tony Abbott was on radio yesterday saying initially the push came from Josh Frydenberg, the former treasurer, um, but it was actually Malcolm Turnbull that ended up coming up with the uh, draft wording for the letter, which the other prime ministers signed. That's really interesting. Um, the Australian-Palestinian Advocacy Network has been really critical of this statement. They're saying it risks igniting community division by demonstrating explicit pro-Israel bias. Uh, In another development overnight, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has spoken, saying that Israel will not agree to a ceasefire in Gaza. And Qantas has filed its defence in the ACCC Ghost Flights Federal Court case. So the ACCC, the consumer watchdog, took action against Qantas earlier this year, claiming it continued to sell flights that had already been cancelled during part of last year. So Qantas is arguing in their defence, and this in in legal terms, that when we book a flight, we don't book a specific flight, but a bundle of rights that includes alternative options in the case of a cancellation. And they argue that they 
In the case of cancelled flights, they work to find other flights close to the ones travellers purchased or offer them refunds and therefore that their actions were legal. You know, when I first read about this, I got so outraged. I was like, how very Mm. dare they? (laughs) I think that's just because, you know, no one likes to think that they're doing one thing when in fact there's weasel words and another thing is happening. But now that I've read the fine print, which I know you've been diving into quite a bit, Tom, it actually doesn't seem hugely unreasonable. What do you think? Yeah, look, I think you've kind of summed it up in a way that this idea that we just book a bundle of rights and, you know, given there's been so many cancellations, those rights don't sound like they're worth very much. It does sound really annoying, but basically Qantas will make this legal argument, um, but the reality is that a lot of people will feel exactly the same way um, you expressed there, that this sounds really annoying and it's not going to do Qantas's reputation any good given what's been going on. So Qantas are now going to be faced with a choice, whether they take this argument all the way to trial or whether they settle out of court with the ACCC. So they might decide it's better to settle this out of court, um, which is what uh, some well-known business commentators are saying will be their best option. Another interesting thing happening in the Qantas space is their annual general meeting is happening on Friday. Um, there's a lot of pressure from shareholders for, you know, even more board changes and pay mm. cuts for senior leaders. So it'll be interesting to see how Vanessa Hudson, the new CEO, handles all of that. Yeah. So the one I'm interested in is Todd Sampson. He's the advertising guru who's well known for being a Gruen panelist on the ABC. Mm. So he's been on the board and he's there to help them manage their reputation, (laughs) which hasn't obviously um, gone very well. So it's going to be interesting to see if, you know, there's enough push from shareholders to push him off the board. And witches, vampires and Barbie are among the most popular costume for adults this Halloween. I know a lot of people planning their Barbie outfits. According to the Retailers Association, many of us are expected to jump on board the bandwagon off the back of the popular Barbie blockbuster earlier this year. Around 5 million Australians are going to be taking part today. And, you know, this is a thing, like Halloween has really built in popularity so much so that now people are expecting that it will generate nearly half a billion dollars for the economy. I was looking at something yesterday. I mean, obviously Halloween, it hasn't been, you know, celebrated to this extent in Australia. Like year on year, it keeps getting more popular. But in countries like Japan, where they've been celebrating Halloween for a really long time. Apparently, it's kind of going the other way, where instead of elaborate costumes, the trend this year is to dress as really ordinary things. Like there was a costume I saw online of someone who'd lost their pencil and another one of a factory worker. Yeah, I mean, you could go just sort of dress in a suit and go as a Qantas executive, couldn't you? (laughs) Or... What about my other idea, Louis Rubiales? That would be an interesting question. Oh, my costume. gosh. We'll see. We'll see how well that takes off. All right, Halloween aside, uh, which is a big party, we are now going to be talking about a common antibiotic that uh, some medical experts are saying could be used as a morning after pill to fight STIs. Mm-hmm. 
Despite all the education around safe sex, STIs have increased 30% over the past five years. Syphilis is at its highest level in 70 years. Public health officials have been calling for new tools and they've been, you know, promoting things like condoms and abstinence, but that can only go so far. So enter an old, cheap and commonly used antibiotic, doxycycline. You might have heard of it, or maybe you've even used it for something else. Now researchers have found that if doxycycline is taken shortly after having unprotected sex, it could stop you from getting bacterial STIs like chlamydia, gonorrhea and syphilis, and even keep you protected for up to three days. It is showing so much promise, a group of 40 Australian doctors have banded together, calling for it to be introduced as a treatment. Vincent Cornelise from the Kirby Institute is one of those doctors, and he joins us on the briefing now. Vincent, first up, explain for us the landscape that we're in right now, where we've seen this increase in STIs. Which kind of STIs are they? And is there any sort of explanation for why this could be? Thanks, Katrina. So really, over the last 10 years, we've seen year-on-year increases in particularly gonorrhea and syphilis. Those increases have accelerated year-on-year, with the exception of the COVID years, so particularly 2020, 2021, and a little bit of 2022 as well, which is understandable. And it was more difficult for people to get access to sexual health services during the peak of COVID, which meant there was a reduction in screening for STIs. So we saw fewer diagnoses, particularly gonorrhea and syphilis. And then I should specify, it's particularly in certain portions of our, or sub-segments of our community. So Gonorrhea and syphilis have particularly gone up amongst gay and bisexual men. But worryingly, we've also started to see more cases in women. Um, And the reason that's particularly worrying is these STIs can be transmitted to unborn babies if those women are pregnant. Oh, gosh, that is a worry. All right, so we need to do something around this, I guess. Some of the options that have been on the table up until now, they're not the only solution, you know, things like using condoms and abstinence and and that kind of thing. What has been found with this particular antibiotic doxycycline, which I know has been used for a whole range of things? For example, my producer and I were just talking about how we used to use it for our skin and it really helped with acne. Yeah, I mean, it was really popular amongst dermatologists some years ago for acne. It's kind of fallen out of favour a little bit there because we now have better acne treatments. But yeah, so doxycycline's not a new antibiotic. It's um, quite old. And I guess you could frame this as a, a sort of repurposing of this antibody. We still use it quite a lot in sexual health for STI treatment. So we use it to treat chlamydia infections, and we use it to treat um, syphilis infections if people are allergic to penicillin as kind of a second-line treatment. And what we have found out over the last couple of years is that there have been some major trials internationally, so in France and in the US, looking at using this antibiotic as a prevention tool. So this is not using sort of long courses of the antibiotic. This is using two tablets or 200 milligrams of doxycycline after sex. So within the 72 hours after sex, or preferably uh, within 24 hours after sex. And they found in those trials, so these were randomized trials, um, looking at STIs amongst gay and bisexual men, 
and they found massive reductions in chlamydia and syphilis in the men who were randomized to receiving doxypep or PEP standing for post-exposure prophylaxis. So you've got to take it within 72 hours, but then how long can it provide a protective effect for? Well, so you take it a single dose after sex, um, within 72 hours after sex. So I guess the best way to conceptualize this is, so say you have sex, say it's a weekend, and for example, you have sex on Saturday night, maybe Sunday morning, and then uh, Sunday afternoon you take a single dose, so two tablets, and that's it. That's that sort of weekend covered. If a few days later you have sex again, you'll need to redose after that sex. So it's each dose provides uh, protection for that 72-hour period. So if you're going to have sex multiple times over a weekend, then you might like to take a single dose on Monday morning to cover the whole weekend. But then if next weekend you go to sex again, you'll have to redose after that weekend. And what have the studies shown so far in that protective effect that it offers? Is it the same for all of the problematic STIs or does it target some better than others? I think for background, we should first just think about the different STIs. So obviously syphilis is a problematic STI. And I say that because syphilis itself has the potential for significant health problems. So people can get really nasty syphilis. They can get syphilis in their brain. Uh, They can get, if you've got syphilis long-term, so over many years, it can affect your heart and can really just make you very unwell. In addition, syphilis can be transmitted to unborn babies and that can result in premature births. It can result in miscarriage. It can uh, can result in neonatal death. And if babies do survive all of this, then they can have congenital syphilis where they themselves develop health problems from the syphilis they got from their mother. So syphilis is a priority in this. And certainly for syphilis, the reductions they saw in the randomized trial ranged from 70 to 80%, which of course is a very significant reduction in such a significant STI. The other STIs are a little bit trickier. So Uh, And the reason I say that is that chlamydia, particularly amongst gay and bisexual men, chlamydia doesn't have much of a health impact. So most chlamydia diagnoses amongst gay and bisexual men are asymptomatic. So they're picked up during screening when people come in for just a routine sexual health check. And most of those guys don't have symptoms and are not going to develop health problems from their chlamydia infection. So they did find in the trials that Um, doxypep was extremely effective at preventing chlamydia, sort of 80 to 90%. I should, um, I guess, clarify that for women or other people with a uterus, chlamydia can be problematic um, because it can cause pelvic inflammatory disease, uh, which can be associated with reduced fertility um, and chronic pelvic pain and other complications of pregnancy. But uh, doxypep so far has only been shown to be effective for gay and bisexual men, um, there was a trial for women in Kenya and unfortunately was shown not to be effective uh, in that population. Um, and we can go into the reasons why that may be so. But so at the moment, uh, and this is a really important part of the message, at the moment, doxypep is only really considered appropriate for gay and bisexual men because of the lack of evidence for effectiveness in women. Hmm. And finally, sorry, Gonorrhea, the other STI. Gonorrhea, again, often doesn't cause significant health problems, but it can be more symptomatic. 
Um, but unfortunately, for gonorrhea, it wasn't shown to be particularly effective. So the reductions in gonorrhea in these trials were anywhere between ineffective, so didn't reduce it, or only reduced uh, gonorrhea by half, so 50%. So really, if you put all that together, this, is, this new intervention is probably best placed as a, as a syphilis prevention strategy rather than to prevent chlamydia or gonorrhea. All right, so we're talking about 200 milligrams of doxycycline. What is the risk of this kind of a dose creating antibiotic resistance? That is the big question that deservedly is receiving much attention at the moment. Of course, antimicrobial resistance is a massive issue. It's been, uh, by the World Health Organization, it's been classified as one of our most significant existential threats uh, alongside climate change and, you know, nuclear war and all the other big existential threats to humanity. Uh, Because unfortunately, the reality is that in medicine in general, not talking about sexual health specifically here, but in medicine in general, we're continuing to lose antibiotics to treat invasive infectious diseases. So I think until we see larger trials with more participants and longer durations of follow-up, we really can't yet answer the question of antimicrobial resistance. And I think this is really important for people to keep in mind if they're thinking about whether they might want to use doxypep, that there are still some unknowns about this strategy. We don't know what it does for antimicrobial resistance. We also don't know what it does for your microbiome. So, you know, our gut and our skin is full of different organisms. We live together with these organisms. Those organisms are important for our health. And we don't know what it means for someone's long-term health to be taking doxycycline on a regular basis and perhaps affecting the gut microbiome. Yeah, Mm. big questions. All right, so you are one of a group of sexual health physicians in Australia that is calling for doxypep to be considered. Where are we at with this? Yeah, so we, for the last six months, went through a consensus process within the sector um, I should say this was broader than sexual health physicians. So the the participants of the consensus group included community members, so uh, members representing gay and bisexual men, as well as uh, sex workers, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and other members of the group included infectious disease specialists, antimicrobial stewardship specialists, uh, microbiologists, epidemiologists, sexual health physicians, and GPs. So it was a really big group of Uh, very diverse uh, stakeholders. And we went through a six-month process of writing a consensus statement and fine-tuning the consensus statement to come up with a statement that reflects consensus within this very broad group of uh, stakeholders. It's available online on the uh, website for the uh, Australasian Society for HIV Medicine. Um, And basically the statement says, this is the evidence for doxypep, and these are the sort of circumstances under which it might be appropriate for someone to use this strategy to reduce their risk of STIs. Again, the statement primarily focuses this on syphilis prevention, given the um, issues with the other STIs. So it's recommended to consider doxypep for gay and bisexual men who have been diagnosed with syphilis recently. You know, obviously. They need treatment for their syphilis, but then the doxypep would be to reduce their risk of reinfection with syphilis. 
that's got quite strong evidence behind it as a suitable sort of suitability criterion. And another suitability criterion is that you know, people who've had, say, two or more STIs in the last six months might benefit from uh, going on to doxypep. Not so much to prevent chlamydia and gonorrhea infections. So again, you know, aiming just at syphilis prevention. Mm. And then we've got a, a few other sort of more nuanced uh, suitability criteria, sort of recognising particular circumstances in which people might benefit from going on to doxypep. That was Vincent Cornelis from the Kirby Institute. And if you want to have a look at the submission that those doctors have put together and do a little bit more reading around this yourself, it is on their website and you can go to ashmformary.org.au. Listener.